0: Go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. A couple weeks ago, we relaunched, so to speak, as a church with a new name, Redemption Church. And it's been our plan to kind of dive a little bit deeper and to maybe be reminded of what really being a church looks like. Specifically, what does it mean to be Redemption Church? What are the key, defining, distinguishing characteristics of the redeemed people of God And specifically, what does that look like here? How do we embody those characteristics in the life of the church of Jesus Christ and here in our local church? And you can see kind of on the banners beside me that we have some distinctives that really form for us and remind us of the key distinguishing factors of who we are, really what the culture of our church is, what we're striving towards, what we're trusting the Lord is producing in us and through us. And they're really in no particular order and, uh, and you're going to see that as I launch into our first distinctive this morning. But I thought uh, beginning by just saying, you know, every one of us is passionate about what we love. And at times in our lives, we find out what we truly love by the degree of the passion we're displaying towards something or someone. Maybe it's a person, like a spouse or a child. Maybe it's a product. I heard Apple had a big keynote launch this week. Some of you go nuts over things like that. You see, the things that we're passionate about and the things that we love are the things that we show a greater degree of excitement towards, exuberance about, the things we tend to talk about most often, the things that get us fired up and excited. And I just want to begin by asking maybe all of us this morning to consider this question, are you characterized by passionate worship of the Lord Jesus Christ? When you begin to talk about Jesus Christ, does it ignite your heart on fire? When you begin to think about the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what your God and King has done for you, does it produce excitement in your heart, exuberance, enthusiasm, joy? And if not, what does that say about your love of God? This morning I want to look at what I think is probably the most important distinguishing factor in the Christian life and really what should be the characteristic of the Church of Jesus Christ and that is passionate worship. A worship that is defined by spirit and truth. And really I I think it's important to say this out the gates as well. I believe that passionate worship is the most important distinctive and in a sense every other distinctive is a servant of this key one. Every one of them is leading us towards being greater, more passionate worshipers of Jesus Christ, and I believe that will become clear not only this morning, but as we begin to move through them in the weeks ahead. I want to dive into the text this morning, so if you have your Bibles open, let's read from John chapter 4, beginning at verse 19. We're going to read down to verse 24. Here is Jesus encountering a woman at the well, and this the context is that Jesus has revealed her sin to her. He's exposed her sin. This woman is in a bit of an outcast, a social outcast because of her sin, and Jesus in- approaches her and she encounters him, and here's what she says. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In my initial research of this passage and thinking through this passage, I've come to see and realize that there is no other place in the scriptures where the term worship is used in such a condensed portion of scripture. You can see the pattern and you can see what Jesus and the Spirit of God is highlighting. The concept of worship is pivotal for this woman and for us this morning to understand. If we're gonna understand what passionate worship looks like, we must first understand this, the priority of our worship the priority of our worship. Here is Jesus, as I said, encountering this woman who is a social outcast. She's at this well at an unusual time of day, a day when most people uh, do not go and gather water in the heat of the day. Jesus speaks to her, another thing that is unusual, a man and a Jew at that speaking to a woman and a Samaritan is highly, highly unusual in this culture. It is definitely looked down upon. And as Jesus begins to talk to her, he unfolds her life before her very eyes. He pulls out her sin and he places it before her, demonstrating that he has a deep and intimate knowledge of who she is and what she desperately needs. And as she encounters Jesus, it's interesting how after exposing her sin, the conversation quickly turns to the most fundamental human reality, the reality of worship in the human heart. And she even says the words to Jesus, our fathers worshiped here. She's speaking of Mount Gerizim, the popular worship destination in Samaria. She says, look, our fathers have always worshiped here, and you Jews, your your past fathers have always said that Jerusalem is the place of worship. And what she really is pointing to is that there has been a lineage of worship that has been passed on to each of these different people groups, and she's trying to figure out which one is right. And I just want to highlight the idea that she is tracing in one sense, without really knowing it, that worship is the fundamental reality of the human heart. Really, the history of humanity is the history of worship. Worship God, in one sense, is the theme of scripture, it is the theme of eternity, and it is the theme of redemptive history. Worship can be defined as honor and adoration directed to God, that's what worship of God is, honor and adoration directed to God, to ascribe to him worth or value that is fitting of who he is. It's something we do with both our lips and our lives, and worship is something that we are always doing because we cannot help it. Telling a person to stop worshiping would be like telling a wheel to stop rolling, or a bird to stop flying, or a star to stop shining. You see, it's what it was made to do. But what this woman is highlighting is that there is true worship and there is false worship. There is right worship and there is wrong worship. There is acceptable worship. There is unacceptable worship. And she goes right to the main point of theological contention between the Jews and the Samaritans, But before we get into the particulars, let's just pause to consider the reality of worship a little more closely. Let's really understand why this is so fundamental to human nature. You see, God, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, made us for himself as his images, as his image bearers to the world. We were made in his image to know, to love, and ultimately to worship him. This is actually what the Garden of Eden teaches us amongst other things. You see, the Garden of Eden is presented as a sanctuary. It is presented as a place where God dwells. It is presented as a temple of sorts. Eden is the place of God's presence on earth, and the place of God's presence is the place of worship. It's interesting to just consider Adam and Eve's relationship with God. You see, Adam and Eve instinctively knew that they had been made by God, they knew that they had been made by God to worship Him. They breathed, they ate, they slept, they played, and they labored to exalt the goodness and the greatness of God. This was just fundamental to them being created by God. I love what D.A. Carson says. He helps us understand this, and I've got the quote up on the screen for you. He says this, God's image bearers delighted in the perfection of his creation and the pleasure of his presence precisely because they were perfectly oriented toward him. No redemptive provisions had yet been disclosed for none were needed. There is no need to exhort human beings to worship. Their entire existence revolved around the God who had made them. That is one of the most Helpful descriptions of worship. A life that is oriented around God who made us. Adam and Eve were given the task in the Garden of Eden to expand the Garden, to push the borders beyond where they originally were, to cover the whole earth, to fill the earth, and to multiply. You see, the expansion of the Garden of Eden, therefore, is actually an expansion of worship. Worship is in fact the goal of the mission in the Garden of Eden. You see, filling the earth by multiplying image bearers in the temple of God's presence, who would then turn and worship and reflect God's glory to the ends of the earth. That was always the plan of God, that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. This is why what John Piper says is is still true of us today. It was true back then that worship is actually the fuel and the goal of missions. You see, everything we do in missions, it revolves around understanding that we are called to create worshipers who will spread the divine glory of God filling the earth. But you see, ever since sin entered the picture, worship has been distorted. It's been redirected away from God to idols, or like our first parents, Adam and Eve, away from God to ourselves. In fact, in zeroing in on this woman's sin in the previous section right before what we read, Jesus is actually pointing out that she has a worship disorder, He's putting his finger on some specific sins in her life that are identifying what she's truly worshiping, and he is attempting to adjust her understanding of worship, to pull it back to its rightful place. Listen, the key lesson in this first point for us is simply this, that we were made to worship. You have to begin with that if you're going to understand what comes next. The focus has moved in this woman's mind away from the right person to the right place. This is where the theological debate was raging at the time that Jesus entered the scene. And that's what this woman wants to discuss most fundamentally. So let's go there together. That's the place of our worship. The place of our worship. Now, she knows all of a sudden here that Jesus is a prophet. Verse 19, sir I perceive that you are a prophet. And then here's her question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that people ought to worship in this place. Jerusalem is what she's referring to there. Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.'" She comes to Jesus and says, okay, Jesus, there's a couple different perspectives on worship here, on the place of worship, and I just want to know who's right. In one sense, what she's getting at is where is the right place to go to deal with my sin? That's what the temple was ultimately all about. That's where the sacrifices took place. That was, in essence, where some of the greatest acts of worship took place in the sacrificial system. It was the reminder of how sin could be dealt with. This woman's just had her sin placed right in front of her eyes, and now she's asking this question. It's not unrelated, you see, her sin in the place of worship. It's deeply and intimately connected. She says, Where's the right place of worship? Where's the right place to deal with my sin? Where's the right place to be made right with God? And Jesus' response is incredibly helpful for us. He says essentially to the woman, listen, listen, the place of worship will soon be irrelevant. It will not ultimately be about a place. You see, there's a day coming when there will be no sacred place of worship. Even the temple, he's communicating in one sense to her, even the temple, which by the way would be destroyed in AD 70, is only a temporary provision, It's not the ultimate place of worship for the Samaritans or for the Jews or for the Gentiles across the world. You see, the temple itself was always reaching back to the original temple, the Garden of Eden, the original place of God's dwelling place on earth, and it was then always pointing forward to the new creation and the future temple that will cover the entire earth with the glory of God. The beginning of Eden, we see this picture of God's presence, and this is what worship really is all about, the place of God's presence. In Eden, where God walked with Adam and Eve, where his presence dwelt among them, sin breaks that relationship, and now there is a fight to figure out how to get back into the presence of God. How is this going to be possible The imagery of the sacrificial system is clear, but so is the tabernacle that goes with God's people when he redeems them from bondage. Here in the tabernacle, the very presence of God fills that place and it travels with them wherever they go. And then entering into the promised land, the temple is established and anchored in the community. You see a constant reminder of God dwelling with his people. But then Jesus comes onto the scene. In John chapter one, it tells us that Jesus tabernacled among us. Here is the living temple of God, the place of God's presence in Christ Jesus, dwelling and moving amongst men. And through the cross, And the giving of the spirit of God, we now, according to 1 Corinthians 6, become the temple of the living God, his spirit dwelling with us. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, the church is called the temple of the living God where his presence dwells. And then in Revelation 20 and 21, we see once again his temple fully and finally established, his glory and presence covering the earth. See, part of the theme of Scripture is dominated, listen, in all of these places, it's dominated by God's presence amongst his people, and that is central to understanding worship. I think you can think of it like this. I'll put this quote up on the screen for you. Where the presence of God is manifested, the worship of God is expected. Yes, the temple was a place of worship according to the Old Testament, a Mosaic law, rightfully so. He could have said, by the way, the Jews are right, and that was true, that was the place, but he was pointing beyond the temple to what the temple was really symbolic of. It was a symbol, and one of its main purposes was to, by the way, stimulate a way of life in worship, in Israel, a worshipful life. You see, worshiping God, even for us today, is not really a geographical issue. We understand that worship is to be a way of life. That's the way we understand the scriptures talking about it. We, we do all that we do for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 is another way of saying that our entire lives are lived to worship God. Everything is an opportunity to bring glory to him, which is the very heartbeat of worship. Now, some of us may be inclined to say, well, then what's the point of the church? I can worship God, and by the way, I've heard this from people from time to time. Well, I don't need the church. My relationship with God is something very personal. I don't need the church, so let's ask the question. Does the idea that that worship is not tied to a geographical location exclude our understanding of a place of worship? The answer is no. Congregational worship has always been close to the heart of God. By the way, that's established in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are called to worship God together. That's the first community. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that it is communal. In fact, you read through the Psalms, which is the Songbook of Israel, and listen to Psalm 111 verse one. It says this, Praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. You see, it doesn't mean that a building cannot be specifically designated for worship. In fact, God has a temple where his presence is manifested in a unique way where he meets with his people. I mentioned it already, but let me remind you of what Ephesians says, where Paul speaks in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 21. He says, So then, He says there's something about corporate worship which is not present in individual worship. And that something is a fuller expression of the reality of God's presence. There's something precious that takes place when God's people as God's household and God's holy and living temple gather together. This is not something that is trivial or minuscule. The scriptures remind us that something precious and supernatural is happening as God's people are united together around the, the fame and name of Jesus Christ. His spirit is working in a unique way to present a fuller expression of the reality of God's presence among us. You see, it's here in the community, in the congregation of the redeemed that we are called to gather together to worship in some very specific ways. It's here that we are called to worship through our singing. It's here that we are called to worship one another through our serving of each other and the exercise of our spiritual gifts. It's here that we're worshiping God as we pray together and we call upon our God together. It's here that we worship God as we give together and faithfully give of our resources from what he's first given to us. It's here that we are worshiping as we study God's word together, as we both preach it and we hear it. It's here that we worship as we are confessing our faith to one another. It's here that we worship through the sacraments, baptism, and communion this is why the author of Hebrews reminds us that we are not to be neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why, why is that so critical and so important for us? You see, we meet together as redeemed saints to remind each other of whose we are, how we got here, and why it matters. It is here that the gospel is placed before us each and every week, and we say to one another, we are here only because of what Jesus Christ has done, only because of the grace of God, and we are here to live for his glory, amen? amen. This is what binds us together. This is what propels us forward together on mission. Jesus was teaching this woman that we will no longer have to go to a place to experience God's presence. Listen, instead, God is going to make us that place. And though we don't need a permanent structure, you can kind of compare it to every family. Every family, listen, the essence of a family is the individuals, but every family needs a home to live in and fellowship in, don't they? And so our emphasis is not upon a structure, it's not upon a building, it's upon what takes place together and what God is doing here in our midst. You see, we come here to get more of God together, and we come here to give more to God together. That is what worship is. You see, the issue is not first and foremost where you worship, but ultimately as we understand God's call for us to worship, it is whom we worship and how we worship that matters most to God. And that is what Jesus is after as he begins to unfold these truths to this woman. Let's look together at the purity of our worship. In verse 22, Jesus says to her, you worship, and he's speaking broadly here now of the Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. There's ignorance in your worship, he says. We worship the Jews, we worship what we know, and then he connects the worship, listen to this, so closely here, to the idea of salvation, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And as we just consider how Jesus kind of attacks this issue in this woman's heart, and he presents to us this picture of worship, let's just ask these two questions. The first one is, this, in the period of our worship, whom do we worship? This is so central to having true worship, passionate worship, proper worship, acceptable worship. You see, if Jesus gave her any further explanation, as maybe we're not privy to the entire conversation, it would have undoubtedly included the fact that the Samaritans' worship was not adequate because their understanding of God's revelation was not adequate. You see, the Samaritans, they did hold to a part of the Old Testament scriptures, but only a part. They only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so their vision of God was only driven by those first five books. The Jews had much more revelation. You see, God progressively revealed himself through scripture from the Old Testament all the way to the end of the New Testament. And so they were actually missing crucial information that would help them understand the fullness of who God is and how then he is to be worshipped. They had an incomplete knowledge of the revelation of God. They worshipped in ignorance, he tells them. You worship, Jesus says, what you don't know And then he says, moreover, salvation is from the Jews, specifically from the tribe of Judah is what he's getting at. Their religion, you see, was characterized. This is so helpful to understand. The Samaritans' worship, we know, was characterized by an enthusiastic kind of worship. It was passionate in the sense that it was exciting, and it was filled with energy, but it was without proper information. Their underdeveloped theology of God had caused them to express an inadequate worship of God. And this is so helpful for us and this is why you can see that even our, our distinctive of bold preaching, it really is a servant to this idea of being a passionate worshiper. You see the Bible is God's revelation of himself. Worship of God as revealed in the Bible is absolutely critical. God calls us through his word and by his spirit to know him intimately, personally, and in an ongoing manner. And without this kind of knowledge, our worship is actually misdirected. Jesus' statement is so helpful. He says, we worship what we know. We we have the revelation of God. We know who he is and all that he's done and so we can actually accurately give to him the worship that is worthy of his name. The purity of our worship must always be driven by the truth. This is why at our church we emphasize substance over style. There's lots of different styles of worship that are good and fine and right, but our primary emphasis in the life of our church is simply this, the substance of our worship. The substance is what matters most to God. And that substance has to be undergirded by and directed from the truth of God's word. Here he says that very clearly. He says God is seeking These kind of worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and in truth, and I want to tackle that idea of truth a little bit more in depth first. You see, truth means that we are to worship what is true about God. We can't just come up with a God of our own invention. So you say, so are people of other religions actually worshiping God? The answer is no. The answer is that their understanding of God is actually inadequate, and they're missing some fundamental components to their understanding of God that would make their worship true worship. Worshiping in truth occurs when we worship in accordance with what God has revealed about himself. And that is primarily directed to what Jesus says right here, for salvation is from the Jews. You see, any worship directed to God that is missing that link of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone is inadequate worship. Jesus ties true worship right here to the redemption that he and he alone could provide. She has not just an underdeveloped theology of the Father, she has an underdeveloped theology of the Messiah. You'll notice that in the text here, she references the Messiah. You see, the Pentateuch talked about the Messiah. She was waiting for a Messiah, but she didn't quite understand the breadth of who this Messiah would be and what he would accomplish. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that redemption is really, in one sense, one of the key themes of the Bible. And again, there are many religions that claim to worship God, but all true worship hinges upon what you do with Jesus Christ. You know, we mentioned the, uh, the study we're going to be doing, um, and it just eluded me. Uh, it was mentioned in the announcements um, Christianity explored. Thank you, and uh, you know we put some promo ads out on Facebook, some videos that are you know trying to appeal to some people, some unbelievers. We're trying to just get the word out that if you have questions about faith and Jesus, you want to know more about Christianity. We'd love to have you come and interact with us. And I was I was just looking at that briefly the other day. Just great videos, a great write up um, that that Miles has put on there. It's so helpful. But one of the things that stuck out was that we're beginning to get some comments, and you see a little bit of anger and hostility coming from some people who are just anti-religion in general. But one of the comments 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 right away was simply, um, you misunderstand, I'm paraphrasing, but the essence of it was you actually misunderstand who Jesus was. He wasn't God, he was just a prophet, and Muhammad is the greatest and final prophet. It's just a very vivid reminder, listen, that, that what we believe about Jesus is at the core of what makes us true worshipers of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is not just a good teacher. He is Lord God Almighty. He is God in human form. He is who he claimed to be. He said, I am the father and one. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through me. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And that is the truth and the access that we have to God that makes our worship acceptable, that makes us acceptable, comes only through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. But the truth alone does not produce, listen, this is so important, it does not produce alone acceptable worship. You can know this truth, you can even believe this truth to some degree, but you can still not be offering to God worship that is passionate and worthy of his name. In fact, you wanna know who did this so well? The Jews, right? The Jews had all of the truth. They had this right here. And yet, Jesus comes to them time and time again and he says, listen, you guys are like dead men, right? You're walking around, you're like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. In other words, you're going through all the external emotions, but your heart is so far from me. Jesus called them hypocrites and phonies their worship was barren and lifeless, even if their knowledge of God was orthodox. And that leads us, listen, to the second part of the equation that we're gonna kinda major on this morning, which is this, how do we worship? How is our worship to be expressed to God? What is the kind of worship that is pleasing? And again, it's crucial to understand that it must be truth, but it also must be spirit. In spirit and in truth, Jesus says. Jesus, by the way, is not talking about worshiping in the Holy Spirit. That's not what this is referring to. He is talking about worshiping with our human spirit, the inner person. Now, it's important to understand that there is a connection between the Spirit's work and our spirit, especially in the New Covenant. And I think that Jesus was alluding to this as well in saying that God is spirit. You see, it's impossible in the New Covenant that Jesus would establish by his blood to worship God with any degree of inner passion, without the work of the Spirit of God working in us. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God indwells us and it changes our affections. And so our spirit, our inner person, is radically and dramatically affected by the Spirit of God that now dwells in us. Our desires change, our love for him, our affection for him changes because of his spirit work in our lives. But what Jesus is pointing at is incredibly important for us to understand that worship has always been intended to flow from the inside out. It has never simply been about the right truths or the right way, it's always been about the right heart. It's not a matter of being in the right place at the right time, with the right words, or the right demeanor, with the right clothes on, or the right formalities. It's not about the right music and the right mood. Worship begins in the heart. And it's not primarily an external activity so much as it is an internal reality. Yes, it is expressed in external ways, and we're gonna get to that in a minute, but you have to peel back the layers and see what God is after. He is after your heart, he always has been, and he always will be. The deficiency in our worship is fundamentally a heart deficiency. God is not looking for those who will worship him in the truth of who he is. Not alone. He's also looking for those who will worship him in the very depth of their inner being. Authentic worship happens only when the very core of our being is being employed in worshiping God. God. And this is actually always the way it's been. This has always been the kind of worship that God is after. And just a a few reminders of this for your heart and for mine. In Psalm 45, verse 1, listen to what the psalmist says. My heart overflows, listen to this, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Psalm 103, verses 102 says this, Bless the Lord, listen to this, O my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Psalm 51, 15 through 17, David says this, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This has always been the kind of worship that God is after. Hearts bowed low before him. Hearts that exalt him for who he is and what he's done. You see, outward performance may or may not actually be worship. Spurgeon said that God does not regard our voices. He hears our hearts, and if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. Sometimes we sing but do not worship. Sometimes we pray with our lips, but worship does not take place. Sometimes we give, but we do not worship. And praise is not true praise unless it comes from the very depths of our hearts. Our worship will never be perfect, that's important to, to make clear, but it must never be insincere. You say, so how do I foster this in my life? How do we as a church family foster this together? Here, here's some ideas. Listen, our corporate worship must be the expression of our individual worshiping lives or it is not Acceptable. Let me say that again, our corporate worship must be the expression of our individual worshiping lives or it isn't acceptable. I used to have a pastor who who used to tell us and, uh, and his kind of church family that we were a part of that a Sunday morning begins Saturday night. You get that? In other words, what you do with your Saturday night is going to affect how you come in on Sunday morning to worship the Lord. So if you're up late, if you're not preparing your heart, if you're not ready to go Saturday night, it's going to affect how you come in and worship the Lord. But can I just, I want to change that. I really, I really think we need to adjust that thinking with all respect to my former pastor because I love the principle. But listen, Sunday morning begins Sunday afternoon. The moment we leave this place after being fed the word of God, after worshiping and serving and giving and all the things that are worshipful here, listen, our worship for next Sunday begins that very moment. The way we leave here and live our lives to the glory of God will affect the way we come in here next Sunday. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, doesn't he? I mean, It's the very heartbeat of worship, according to Paul. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the way you do that is by not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, all week long, as we pursue God in his glory, as his word shapes and molds our heart, as we obey God in faithfulness to him by the power of his spirit, listen, we are worshiping him and the culmination of that week is right here, right now. Let me say it like this. If, if, if you think you can live any way you please throughout the week, just hear me, loved ones, hear me. If you think you can just sin your brains out all week long and then come to church and worship God faithfully, you're kidding yourself. Can, can true worship happen? Yes, when you come in and there's brokenness and repentance, yes, of course. But listen, the, the power of your worship is fueled by the worship of your weak. We must cultivate a lifestyle of worship that will add to the power of our corporate worship together So if our heart is sincere, you say, so okay, my heart's sincere, I'm worshiping the Lord. What can or what should the expression of our worship look like, especially corporately as we gather together? I mean, what what does this worship look like when we gather together? Like I said, it's happening all the time in how we give, how we serve, how we care for one another, how we sing, how we pray, how we hear. But I just want to maybe talk to the culture of worship that we are after here By making it clear that we are fundamentally all about a sincere heart in accordance with the truth of who God has revealed himself to be, expressed in passionate praise. Biblical truth and heart sincerity are the bone and marrow of passionate worship, And I want to talk about what this can look like for you and for me. And and again, this is without putting restrictions. Let me just qualify this. I want to be really careful here. I'm not mandating how you must worship. The Bible is going to tell us some ways that we should be worshiping. And and I understand that some of us come from different backgrounds and and have different ideas of what constitutes acceptable worship or pleasing worship to God or things we're comfortable with. And, And I understand you need to be who you are in one sense when it comes to worship. But, and this is a really big qualification here, Because be who you are is something we throw down often so that we don't have to change, isn't it? Let us not use that as an excuse that prevents us from being who we ought to become. I'm very happy with who God has made you to be, but just like your life and my life, listen, there are areas in our life where God is saying, hey, I accept you as you are, but I wanna change you to be who you're supposed to be. And I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn when it comes to worship and how we worship God. Some of us need to actually be nudged toward expressing worship in ways that we've actually thought or been taught are irreverent and unbiblical or ungodly. If I could just say it like this, reverence, and I think that's a big idea in worship, by the way, all of our worship is to be reverential, but reverence is not synonymous with joylessness. Okay? Did you catch that? Reverence is not synonymous with joylessness. They're not the same thing. Soberness should never discount celebration. And we just should make it very clear that this is a place where there are gonna be times and expressions of worship that are a little bit more sobering, a little bit more reflective, and that's a good thing, and that is part of being reverential, but it is not irreverent to be celebratory of the good things that God has done for us, amen? I mean, if you have a problem with that and you think that that's wrong, just start reading the Psalms. Start at Psalm 111 and pick up from there and just start kind of marching through those psalms and watch the joy and the celebration that is included in the songbook of Israel. Some of us have been shackled by the belief that to show emotion and expression in worship is irreverent. I'm gonna speak to a segment of our our church family uh, otherwise known as men for a moment. Specifically, and listen, I mean this seriously. Some, some of the biggest problems, I think this is a massive problem, is, is the Jews' problem. There are some people, even in our church family, who, who love theology. And they claim to be stalwarts of the faith and they just love the Bible, love theology, but can stand expressionless and voiceless in the congregation of God's people. And can I just tell you, if that's happening, there is a serious disconnect with your theology and the practice of your theology. Emotion, listen, I'm gonna be careful with this, emotion without truth is ignorant worship, it is, and it's not okay. Truth without emotion, listen to this, equally as much so, is dead worship. It's dead worship. Both are unacceptable. So I just want to start by answering some simple questions about worship and especially worship and related to what we're doing this morning. I think I've kind of qualified this enough so let me just get after one of the key expressions of worship. Maybe you're asking, well, should I sing? (laughs) If I have to answer that for you, There are way too many commands in scripture that tell us we need to sing to the Lord, but if you need biblical proof of that, just jot down 1 Chronicles 16, 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Right? Tell of his salvation from day to day. So what about my body language, my posture, or the, the expression of my face, does that matter? Like, do I have to smile when I worship? You don't have to, but it's a really good idea, okay? It's okay to express that you're happy with what the Lord has done. In fact, Proverbs 15, 13 says this. It says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face. Let me ask you, church family, are you glad about the salvation you have in Jesus Christ this morning? All right, let's, let's show that on our faces every once in a while, right? Especially in our worship. Let's be, let's be happy about what God has done. He's been so gracious to us. He's been so merciful to us say, well, do I have to raise hands? <laughs> Some of you are like, ooh, now you're getting into sticky territory. I mean, the answer is no, you don't have to. You don't have to, but, but is it biblical? Maybe it would be a better question. Like, Is it a biblical way to express worship? The answer to that, come on, somebody help me out. Yes, listen, Psalm 63 verse 4, in the context of congregational worship, by the way, listen to this, so, this is David, so I will bless you as long as I live, in your name I will lift up my hands, and I wasn't going to go here, but I'm going to do it, okay, what about dancing, listen, I'm not telling, listen, we're not going to be crazy here, but listen, David danced before the Lord with all his might, you can sway a little bit, okay, I, I, just, I say this to be helpful because I really believe, and I was here, by the way, at one point in my life. I believe that some of these things were reserved to, for, for people who were in another camp, uh, spiritually speaking or you know, denominationally speaking, and here's what the Lord has been teaching me. That's not true. God, when God, when, I, when God wants our worship, listen, he wants all of our worship, and it's okay. I'm not forcing you to do anything, so nobody rush after the service and say, how dare you, legalistic, force me into a mold. That's not what I'm doing. I just want to help you because I believe God is worthy of our greatest praise, don't you? And I want to be able to express that with every part of my being, and I want you as our church family to express that with every part of your being. Maybe if it's helpful, if you can just imagine one day as a follower of Christ, listen, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, amen? And you're going to join the choirs of heaven. Think about this for a second. You will, whether you like it or not. Do you believe for a second that when you stand before King Jesus, your Savior, and your God, with the choirs surrounding you, lifting your voices, that you will stand there like this? (laughs) If you think you are, you're crazy. I mean that in the most loving way. The elders around the throne, listen here, listen, are falling on their face in worship the saints around the throne cannot contain the passion and the volume of their praise for their king. If you'll show emotion then, why not now? If you'll worship passionately then, isn't God deserving of it now? Yes, let us give God what is due from hearts that are filled with truth and overflowing with joy. And if I could say it like this, some of us, listen, we treat church as if it's some kind of rehearsal for heaven. And, and listen, there's gonna be a grand day when we stand before Jesus and we sing our praises. But can I just, I just, like we, we, just, think about this for a second. This is not a rehearsal for being in the presence of our Savior. Our Savior, by the power of his spirit, is here every single Sunday in our midst. So how about we start singing as if that's actually true because it is, amen? This is whom God is seeking. As Jesus stands before this woman, I think you need to hear him say it. Again, because he's not just saying it to her, he's saying it to all of humanity. He's saying it to you, and he's saying it to me. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him, listen to this, must Worship in spirit and truth. Here in this story, God is actually in a very subtle and careful way opening her eyes to the magnitude of all that he is. Here in this story, it's interesting just to look back over it. God the Father, listen, sends God the Son with God the Spirit seeking one more true worshiper And I don't know when it happened, not fully and finally, but I believe it happened to her. Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, came to seek and to save the lost. I wonder, is he seeking you this morning? Is he seeking your heart and is he trying to pull your heart away from the worship of idols or the worship of yourself and is he trying to pull you into a redeemed relationship with himself where you will find out why you were made to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who died and rose and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. Come to him in faith this morning, repenting of your sins and giving yourself to him fully and completely. Has he sought you already this morning? Good. Then come and worship See your God, the one who gave his life so that you may live. Let your heart be fueled by who God is and all that he's done. That's what we're called to do when we gather together. Remember our God by specifically remembering all that he's done in the gospel of Jesus Christ.